So good to be with you here this morning. Again, my name's Andy. That was my wife leading worship. Sometimes people are confused because we never quite stand next to each other on a Sunday morning, but that is my wife. She's taken, hands off, other guys. <laughs> I feel like I should say that. Um, yeah, but it's so good to be back. So um, sweet to be back in this place. It was great to go home to, to my family in England and to introduce our kids to their cousins for the second time and just have so much fun and to be there over Easter. And there's something special when you go on holiday and you see, you know, you go around the other side of the planet and you just see Christians worshiping Jesus. Uh, maybe it's the church you grew up, maybe you get to go home and just see where they're at. And it was great to see this church that's alive, that's thriving, that is raising their voices for Jesus. It was, yeah, sorry that we weren't here over Easter, but I trusting that this was an amazing time here as well. Um, actually, <clears throat> I think it was in the prayer meeting, um, something just occurred to me is like, I was thinking about roller coaster rides um, on, the, uh, on our trip out uh, to go. Uh, we flew from Nanaimo, so you know if you fly from Nanaimo, you've got to get on a little, little plane. And uh, we weren't having the best weather here a few weeks ago when we left, so it was uh, this stormy day. Um, much to my wife's enjoyment, it was the most uh, turbulent flight that I've ever been on. And uh, it was sweet to see our kids on that flight because there's sort of an ignorance of ch children to the, to the impending doom that might be coming their way. Um, as they don't really know about how high we are, how, how well the, the plane is maintained, how cheap the tickets were, um, things like that. Airlines haven't had a lot of money recently. Uh, this is scary. The pilots haven't had a lot of practice recently. Um, different things like that. And uh, Camilla was sitting on the road behind, behind me. I just saw her clenching, clenching the chair, clenching a sick bag. And Ellie just looking the most joyous look on her face as she thought she was in the middle of a roller coaster ride or something like that. Uh, it was pretty, pretty daunting going out there, but we had an amazing trip. What got me thinking about roller coaster rides this morning wasn't just that, but just thinking about. You know, we've come out of Easter here, and today we're actually going to stay in and stay in that story and continue on our series uh, for at least another week here. I was thinking there's, <clears throat> there's something different, especially like being on a turbulent plane. There's something different with looking at a roller coaster from the firm ground. When you look at it from the side, you think about it with all your perfect reasoning. You're thinking, well, this is well engineered. They spent millions of dollars on this. Hundreds of thousands of people have been on this roller coaster before me. Everyone has survived so far. Odds are I will survive too. But then there's something different when you actually get on the thing and it goes click, 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 <laughs> click. You're strapped in. There's nowhere to go. You can't get off. Your fate is sealed to the now the journey that's set out before you. No choice. No matter how hard you scream, you can't get away from that thing. Does anybody remember a roller coaster like that? Um, it's usually the cheap ones that actually really scare you, isn't it? When the traveling roller coaster comes to town, that's the scary one. You look at the 16-year-old, nothing wrong with 16-year-olds, but I'm not sure how good they are at checking nuts and bolts and other things. And it was the same for the disciples. They'd just been through this dramatic roller coaster ride of events. As you've heard, Paul preached last week, uh, Mark before that, and, and, and had a few amazing preachers about just what was happening going on. You know, they had come in a triumphal entry to Jerusalem. The people around them thought that the king was here, the Messiah was here, life as they knew it was saved, they were going to throw off Roman oppression. 
And then Judas betrays Peter. The religion, the Judas betrays Peter, uh, Jesus. Jet lag is still here. There's a few inconsistencies that will be checked at the end. Um, you know, Peter gets in a fight, cuts off an ear. The religious elite want to see Jesus just taken away and killed because of the revolution that he's bringing. And it's one thing looking back as a disciple of Jesus that we are here this morning, look at back in that cause of events and seeing what Jesus said before it happened. And I was just, oh no, of course, it was obvious what he was going to do. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to rise again. But if you look at the disciples in the middle of that roller coaster ride of events, you can see the very pit, that feeling deep within their stomach of dread of, oh my goodness, what is going on? I know theoretically what is going to happen, but the journey of this experience is very, very different to me right now. So today we're going to continue in on from that series. Paul brought us through last week on Easter Sunday about what it means that Jesus rose again from the dead. And this morning we're going to turn in our Bibles, if you have them physically with you here this morning, or if you have that in your phone, just glance at the scripture, something about reading along with the scripture here today, uh, that'll just make a difference. And we're going to open up to Acts 1 and see what happened. Um, If you haven't been with us or if you've been new to Oceanside, we've been in a series on Luke um, over the past number of weeks. It's it's great. We're just finishing up now, but we're just going to enter into a little bit of Acts just to see what was the final deposit that Jesus left the disciples with. What did he say um, when he not only rose again, but when he went back to heaven and he left them by themselves? So reading from Acts chapter 1 from verse 2, it says, Until the day he was taken up, until the day Jesus was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, that's the disciples, whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them. After his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard me. Uh, He said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In verse 6, it continues on. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let's think about that. (laughs) And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Lord God, we thank you for your scripture here this morning. We just pray that you would illuminate this verse to us, that you would challenge us as we've already been challenged through worship and the words that you brought here today. Lord, we just pray that you continue. Amen. Amen. It's funny what the disciples asked Jesus after his death and resurrection. And it's actually not that funny. It's, it's probably what we would say as well. It's like, wow, this dr- very dramatic thing has just happened. 
our Savior, who we thought was going to conquer the Roman Empire, he died, but now he's back again. Okay, right now, this must be the moment where Jesus is going to conquer and wipe the face of the planet clear and just leave God's people behind in perfect harmony, as as has been prophesied. They say to him in verse 6, says that when they came together, he said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? If you're new to reading the Bible or studying scripture, you know that the, the whole beginning part of this book is a story of God's people walking to God, walking away from God, heading out into exile, being captured, coming back, realizing that they've sinned. It's a to and fro. And the nation of Israel, the people of God, the Jewish people were forever waiting for a Messiah to come and to put all that to rest. In fact, the Jews at that time in BC 60 had just been conquered again by the Roman Empire. Another nation was coming to put them under their foot. Another nation was coming to do their bidding with the land. And the people were desperate for a solution. Jesus says, oh sorry, out of John 12, 13, it was a flashback to the triumphal entry when the people came together and welcomed Jesus in just before Easter, saying he's the king of Israel. They thought they had the physical king. And again, back to the the feeding of the the 5,000 earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus actually had to leave that, that miraculous sign really quickly afterwards because the crowd wanted to make him their physical king. All throughout the Gospels, the people were looking for a Messiah. They saw it within Jesus, but it wasn't the Messiah that they were expecting. I think we ourselves are looking for that same Messiah in our current time and period. It's been interesting going back. Um, you know, maybe there's a hometown you go back to like us. There's that, that hometown that we go back to every three or four years or something like that. So you get snapshots of it in time. You have your memory as a child and then you have what is happening today or what is happening five years ago. And for us going back, you see these snapshots and it's not snapshots of a nation that's getting closer to God. It's snapshots of a nation that's getting further away from God, where things are seemingly more complicated, where people are more nervous of the church and evangelical Christianity and things like that. The same is happening here as well. And we are looking for a Messiah to come and fix everything. We might indeed have the same questions for Jesus right now. Are you going to restore Canada to the way it was supposed to be, to the way it was founded? Are you going to do it now? Our desire is the same as theirs. And their desire wasn't a bad desire. In verse 6 it says, are you going to restore? Again, they weren't, they weren't saying, hey, are you going to make a high office for me? Are you going to do these things, this, that, and the other? No, are you just going to restore what you have made? And that is what we're waiting for as well. But he answered them this. He said to them in verse 7, he said, It's not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What a gut punch to the stomach that would have been for the disciples. Like, I thought we made it. I thought that thing that we just experienced was the finish line that we were going to cross. I thought we just came to the end of the roller coaster. Some of us are confused by the current season. Some of us are tired of the current season. Some of us are looking for Jesus to bring a final solution to the current season. 
But we have to trust that Jesus knows the times and the season, seasons, sorry, not even that Jesus, that the Father knows the times and the seasons that he's fixed by his own authority. Have you ever been through a season of trial or suffering or just confusion in your life and you've looked back some number of years later and you've realized, oh, that is what God was doing there. Well, that's when God gave me that thing. That's when God put that hope within me. That's when God taught me that sequence of things. Similar to looking back at the roller coaster, it's like, okay, that's where that bit, that really bit was terrifying up there. Yeah, but I can see where I am now. What would you say back to yourself at that point in time? You would say, relax. God is doing something here. God is making a way. And Jesus was saying the things to the disciples as well. It's like, no, it's not quite time to restore the kingdom of Israel to what it was supposed to be. But the Father knows the times and the seasons. The other thing that really strikes me as interesting here is that Jesus uses, it's been translated anyway, Jesus used the plural of times and seasons. They were looking for one event, one beautiful event where Israel will be restored. But Jesus says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And we know throughout church history that the church and God's people have great advancements at certain times. And then there's long periods of, wow, what is God going to do next? Where are you this morning? Are you in a, in a period where God seems to be advancing things in your life, seems to be bringing you to the people around you? Or is it a time of silence? The thing that Jesus follows up with here, they were looking for a certain kind of revolution, just like the people at the triumphal entry. But Jesus was bringing about something completely different. In Luke 24, just switching back, you don't need to turn there, it'll be up on the screen. But Luke 24, 45, it says, it says and he opened, and this is a, a parallel scripture to where we are in Acts. They sort of overlap a little bit and include just a little bit of different information written by the same person. It says, Luke 24, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed uh, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The disciples wanted a restoration of God's political power over the land, but instead they got a message of repentance. The disciples wanted God to send a military victory and to come again in power, not the carpenter that had come before them. And instead, they got a message for the forgiveness of sins. And it's the same for us here this morning. As we see our nations, as they saw their nation in suffering and difficulty and lostness, again, the, the occupying forces had put Jesus to death, but also the religious elite, their own people had put the Messiah to death as well. They would have been even more sad about the current state of affairs for the land that they were living in than even we are today about what is happening in our nations. But God answers them, no, it's not the physical kingdom I'm bringing just yet, but a kingdom of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's powerful for us here today. You know, we see on social media 
see on all the different things about how when, when Christianity is, is, is put in tension or when your faith is put in tension, it comes out in different ways amongst our people. We follow a lot of you online and other things and it can just be, be interesting to see what's being posted and what's going on here. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, again, it'll be up on the screen. It says, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. As I was reading that scripture and just preparing for this morning and preparing that, you know, Jesus has given us a mission of leading people to repentance and leading people towards forgiveness. The thing that really stuck out to me in that passage was the part where it says, not counting their trespasses against them. I think about how good I am at counting people's trespasses against me. How good it is, how easy it is to count the number of things that people have done to me that has wronged me. There was a guy, actually, talking about going back to England. We walked past a pub, um, and, uh, and I remember a certain night, and this must have been like 15 years ago now, and uh, you'll see where it's going. It's a good thing, but there was this, uh, there was this uh, person, a university student there, and he was part of the church, and he really needed to get the train to London the next day um, because, yeah, he couldn't, uh, but he couldn't get there. He didn't have enough cash. I, I remember giving him 20 pounds to get the train to London, and as I walked past that pub as we were back in England, I thought, hey, that, night, that guy never gave me the 20 pounds back. <laughs> It's really easy to remember. It's fine. It's good. I'm pretty sure at the time as well, I was like, nah, don't worry about it. And he was like, no, nah, I'll give it back to you. It's like, he never did. I don't remember his name, but I'd remember him if I saw him. Um, it's interesting, the things that we latch onto, isn't it? When someone has wronged us, when someone has cost us something, when someone has trespassed against us, that's the thing that we latch onto. And just like the disciples were living out there, they knew the trespasses that were being committed against their people, being committed against God's people, against their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their fathers. They knew each and every trespass. But yet God calls us in 2 Corinthians 5 to not count the trespasses that have been committed against us. God himself even though the ultimate trespass was committed against the Son of God on the cross. For those that come to him, he has chosen not to remember their sins anymore. As we proceed out into that ministry of reconciliation, that ministry of forgiveness of sins, we need to remember that. It says in Ephesians 5 verse 8, it says, For at one time you were, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. As we're surrounded by a culture, we remember that at one time we were just like them, that we were lost, but God has brought us in. And in Acts 20, 26, verse 18, uh, the Apostle Paul is telling about his conversion story and the mission that he has given to him by God. And he says this, uh, 26, verse 18, about his mission that he's been given. He says, my mission is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified in faith in me. Sanctified by faith in me. And that's, that's Jesus speaking there to Paul. 
We are a people that wants to open the eyes of the people around us. In James 4 verse 6, it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We are a people that want to look to the humble people around us who don't know God, who are ready to receive the riches that God has for them. I felt that God wants to say, don't be distracted by the proud world around us. The loudest voices are always the proudest ones. And those are the ones who are the hardest to reach. But Jesus, so often in the way he went about his ministry, he just happened to rub up against shoulders with the people who would never put themselves out there, who were too quiet, too, too innocent to come and come to him directly. Let's reach the people who are humble. In Acts 1 verse 8, just heading back into the story here, Jesus is going to give us handles on what happens next after the resurrection. It says in 1 verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're not preaching about it today. And there was a 10-day period where the disciples, sorry, there was a 10-day period between the ascension of Christ and the thing that Jesus was talking about here, the promise that was coming. It was the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon the people in power and turning them into the powerhouse of witnesses that God needed to make this, nation, to make this message known to the world. But interestingly, in Acts, he uses different words here than, than elsewhere recorded by other Gospels. It says, you will be my witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness of Christ to the world around us? We know what it means to try and fight the world around us. We know what it means to try and make our opposition known to the world around us. But what does it mean to be my witness? Think about how you became a believer in Jesus. What was it that won you to Christ? Was it the weaponry of warfare or was it the witness of Jesus? To be a witness of Jesus means to fully represent him before somebody else. Again, if you've seen a car crash or something like that, sometimes you'll see at the side of the road looking for witnesses, looking for someone to, co to, to collaborate the story looking for someone to give a testament to what's going on. We are those witnesses. Why do we need the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of him? Because it's going to take tremendous power to reach this world that is far away. And actually in Acts, verse 1, Acts 1 verse 2, it tells us that Jesus himself was operating through the Holy Spirit. In verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. I love that about Jesus. I love that he was in submission and, and, and working with the Holy Spirit. That actually he himself was giving commands to the disciples through that Holy Spirit, showing them the way of how they were inter to interact. The main point for us here today, and just as we uh, yeah, go through this, I've got six points that I want to bring up of how I've read this scripture. And this is a scripture that we're all very familiar with. We all really know. Um, again, if you've been around for any much time, you, you know that Jesus rose again and that he ascended. 
But in verse 9 it says, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And as I was thinking about this, you know, you, you're familiar with Scripture. You're familiar with the story of the Bible. You've heard it, you know, as I grew up in a, a Christian family, you've heard it, you know, since before you can remember what happened. And then suddenly got me this week as like, this is a really odd time to leave, Jesus. Why did Jesus leave at this particular time? He had just said, hey, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And then he left. I thought, that's a bit odd. Why wouldn't you want to do the sort of the father-daughter thing at the wedding where you, you walk the daughter down the aisle and hand, hand her over to the, to the groom? Wouldn't you want to do that? Isn't Jesus sort of walking the disciples down the aisle and saying, like, hey, this is, your, this is the new person. You used to have me, but now you have the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me that Jesus left before the Holy Spirit came. Why did he do that? And as I was reading this, one of the key, the first point that I want to make known to us this morning, that I want to challenge us with us here this morning, is that God was preparing the disciples to get out of the nest that they were in. I think some of the, the language that's been brought here this morning by Wes and others is that we are being challenged, actually. God is shaking something up, and God wants us to do something here. If you think about the disciples' journey, they'd just been on a roller coaster ride, and now Jesus was back, their savior, their warm, cuddly savior. Everything was good when Jesus was around. Well, except for certain parts where he caused chaos and other things like that. But ultimately, when their leader was around, they knew exactly what was going on. They were safe, they were comforted. But Jesus left. It says in Acts 2, 38, just on um, from when they received the Holy Spirit, it said, And Peter said to them, talking to a crowd, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And verse 39 says, For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, to everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. I love that. And what I think was happening here is that Jesus was himself pulling himself back, saying, no, you guys are it now. You guys go forward and you guys receive the thing. And I think Jesus stepped back from Pentecost though, so that he wasn't physically pre present at Pentecost because he wanted the disciples to know that actually the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes by himself. The Holy Spirit isn't dished out physically by Jesus in that sense. Because Jesus knew that there was a generational plan ahead of these disciples to get the Holy Spirit to each generation that would come before them. I think about it now. It's like we always think about Easter as being, you know, 2,000 odd years ago. And today, a few days ago, I was just like, okay, but what is that in generations? What is that in generations of families coming down the line? And I looked at it and I studied a little bit about what is a generation. There's, you know, you can, you can work the numbers a little bit. But it's 80 generations between the coming of the Holy Spirit and us here today. 80 generations. To me, that doesn't seem like a very high number. To me, that seems like quite less than the number of people in this room or even one section of this room maybe. 80 generations between the coming of the Holy Spirit and to us. And in verse 39, Jesus remind, uh, sorry, Peter reminds us that the promise is for you and for your children. To me, he's saying it's for every generation to come. Jesus isn't going to hang around for the coming of the Holy Spirit because they might look back and say, hey, the Holy Spirit only comes on people when Jesus is around. 
No, the Holy Spirit comes when the gospel is preached and when hearts cry out to Jesus. Physical discipleship, point number two is physical discipleship from Jesus was for one generation. But now, every generation since, it's been from the Holy Spirit, been from Spirit-enabled people. In this room, there are three generations, probably, of believers, from the oldest to the youngest, looking at a generation as being about 25 years. Three generations of those 80 live right here in this room, and we are passing what it means to know God and to receive reconciliation to God down those generations. I love it. It's awesome. And as I think about what has to happen in every generation, it's been interesting, right? Like every generation gets a name. The greatest generation that went through the world wars. Now all the generations are escaping, but you get your millennial generation. Like, but generations are shortening up a little bit for those guys because it's like every, every big technology, technological leap, there's a different generation now. But physical generations, it's important that we pass it on. And as we come out of this current season into the next, it almost feels like a generational leap of what God wants to do in his spirit for at least the church in Canada, I think. And God, like the disciples at that point who sort of left, he left and then said, hey, something's coming for you. God is calling the next generation out of the cozy little nest that they found themselves in. The challenge as I read this scripture, the challenge as I thought about this scripture, the challenge as I thought about the promise of what it meant was that, you know, we're all very happy to stand behind the safe walls that have been constructed around us, maybe from the previous generation before us. But what does it mean to walk outside of those walls and to step into the promise of what God has given us? Jesus left at that moment in time on purpose before the coming of the Holy Spirit because he wanted them to get out of the nest. He wanted them to come out from behind the shadow of them just following him about. And now they were going to follow the Holy Spirit. And that's the challenge I want to ask us here today. Is how is God asking you to step out? What challenge has he brought before you? What message and what ministry has he put in front of you? We've been accused of being a quiet church here this morning. (laughs) What an accusation, Wes. Wow. But how can we ruffle the feathers to get out into what's coming on? After Jesus ascends... There's this really strange interaction which is just in there. It says in Acts, um, it says in Acts from verse 10, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. I'm assuming these guys are angels, right? Or just two random, we, maybe two, two just random guys in white robes. I've got to get a white robe and stand beside people uh, in Nanaimo and just say, hey, look at that. Uh, <laughs> They might write it down and think it's really amazing. No, I'm pretty sure we're talking about angelic beings, messengers from God here. It says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. I was thinking about that interaction. I was thinking, wow, if I was a disciple of Jesus, how long would I be standing there gazing into heaven? 
Have you ever stood on like the, the precipice of a, of a big life event? You've kind of just stood there and taken it in. Like, hey, what, is, what does this mean? I bet for the disciples that they would have been taking it in for an extended period of time. Maybe Jesus went up into heaven and they were there for like three hours being like, oh my gosh, what next? And God's like, hey, you guys go down from heaven. You tell them to, to move on because <laughs> they're going to get stuck on this mountain looking up at the clouds. But you would be standing there considering your, the outcomes of what the event is going to be. Just previously, they thought they were all goners. Peter, his like the most prominent guy, was like, I'm never going to leave your side. I just rejected Jesus a few times because he thought his head was on the chopping block next. And guess what? The religious elite, the Roman Empire, was still there, hadn't gone away. They still hated Jesus, and probably all the more with all the fanfare that was about to begin. I bet you they were thinking to themselves, hey, I wonder what next week's. Wonder what's for lunch tomorrow. Wonder what's going to happen. Ten days they were left thinking those questions. But the angels come and they sort of nudge them on the shoulder and they say, Hey, why are you, do you stand looking up into heaven? And I love this moment because it's so incredibly human. And it's so incredibly similar to what we found last week. Paul read to us that the two women who came looking for Jesus to, to anoint his dead, they thought they were going to find his dead body and they were going to anoint his body with oils and spices and all that. And two men appeared as well in white robes, probably the same two, two angels, and said, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? What were the angels saying to them at that point? It's like, why, why are you back at the tomb? You should know that Jesus isn't here based on the stuff that he's already said. And that's why these angels came to the group of the disciples as well. It's like, why are you looking at the clouds? You know, he's not actually up in that specific cloud right there, right? I felt for us, what is the modern day equivalent of this? What is the situation or event that we can't help but stare at here this morning? Similar to that snapshot of society that we get, maybe we're staring at the world, being like, we're just like a gasp and a gaze, like, what's going on? What's going to happen? Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a work situation. Maybe it's something personal in your lives that you're just staring at the aftermath of a series of events, and you're just being like, wow, just considering what is going to happen next. But Jesus wants to say, why are you looking at that thing? I want to show you something else. I want to show you the next thing. And in the words that they say, the angels say to the, to the disciples, they say a few things. The first thing they say is, men of Galilee. If you know scripture, you know that nothing is put in scripture because that you can just breeze by. Why did they say men of Galilee? And I think the angels started with men of Galilee to remind the disciples where they had come from over the last three years. How far they had come from those early days when Jesus had called them from their boats, from their jobs, and say, hey, come follow me, you little boys who don't know anything. Same for us as well when we get stuck, encapsulated in that event that's just happened or encapsulated by what's happening in society, is we can just get stuck and fixated. But God wants to remind us, men of Galilee... Or God wants to remind us, look how far I've called you so far. Look how far I've brought the church in the last 80 generations. Look how far since the original men of Galilee that we are today. Yeah. Nothing is going to derail. Nothing is going to distract from the mission that I have for you. Yeah. The second thing that they say is, why are you looking up into heaven? 
And I think it's just a bit of a, hey, wakey, wakey, shake it off. Remind yourself about what has has just happened. Remember not where Jesus has gone, but remember his instruction of what is coming next. And they say after that, they say, um, you know, this Jesus who was taking up into heaven, who will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And I was struggling with that, with that verse for a little bit. It's like, okay, why did they add that bit onto the end? Why didn't they just say, hey, shoo, get on. Go, go, go pray until the day of Pentecost comes. They said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. And the, the angels were reminding them of the final destination, the answer to that question of when will you restore the kingdom of Israel? The first answer from Jesus is that, yeah, only God the Father knows, and we don't know the time, and we don't know the season. And the encouragement from the angels said that, just remember, he is coming back again. And what that means to us is whatever that situation is, whatever that thing is, whatever that life event is, that God will get us through. Even if it's at the second coming, where all of those situations, all of those tears get wiped away and, encaps- and, and, and overcome by, by what he's bringing. At that final moment, the disciples had a choice whether to remain bystand- bystanders or just plain non-active witnesses. Would they recede and just become you know, book smart with what had happened? Or would they follow the instruction and go to where they, where, they, where they were being told to go? And I think the same for us as well today is that will we just be bystanders to what God is doing? Or will we pick up the mission of what he has given us to do in this culture, in this generation? Why don't the worship team come back up? And uh, yeah, we'll finish with some worship here. Some of us, again, when we come as a family here this morning, we're all in separate places. We're all coming either in a victory or a loss or in a dry spell or a, or a really good spell or something like that. But I felt like there's people here who feel like they're just strapped into this roller coaster <laughs> and they don't have any choice about where the track is currently taking them. I thought we would love to pray for you here this morning. And I felt the big thing for us is that as we come out, there are people here, there are nation changes in this room here this morning or up in our kids' rooms here this morning. There is the next generation of believers here. There are three generations of believers here. And God wants to do something bold in our midst. God doesn't want to use the current set of circumstances that we've come through and just let it be a memory. No, God wants us to pick up and run with what we've got next. And I want to invite people to the front here this morning who feel like they need to step up and step out from the nest that they've been dwelling in. That they want to step up and that they want to step out from the shadow that they've been hiding in. And I was going to use more of the shadow language here this morning, and I thought, well, when we talk about shadows, we think about darkness and stuff like that. The, the, the disciples weren't, 
when they, can't, when they came out of Jesus' shadow or Jesus' nest, they weren't rejecting the nest as a bad thing. In fact, a nest is only good if it reproduces and it causes the thing that's in the nest to get out of it. A nest is there for an incubation time, for a strengthening time. But then there is a time of flight, mission and action and purpose for the thing that you are actually designed to do. And for us, I know with, for me, for us, I feel challenged with like, what is the thing that I've been called out of the nest for? And I don't know what it is in your life. Maybe you're a teen here this morning. Maybe it's just, you know, coming up to the end of school or something like that where you've got to make some decisions. Or maybe it's like Andrew with that thing that he's been told to, to give up that thing. God's told me to give up this thing and step out of the next nest into the next thing. I don't know what your situation is, but we would love to pray for you. This church needs more people who are standing up and getting out of the nest each and every week, who are not just coming to a church for a time of incubation and comfort and prayer and love and all those things are great and good, but we need people who are going to step out. God has the Holy Spirit for us here today. The very next thing that happens is the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples in power and they go out and turn from little boys into the next generation of leaders and lead the church into all that it has been. We need more leaders in this time. We need more people to step up and out. We would love to pray for you. So maybe as the band just play, if you feel like, I just invite you to stand up. I'd love to pray over you here this morning. And if you feel like there's something that you want to share or something that you want actual prayer for, we'd love to invite you up to the front to just pray over you, maybe prophesy over you, commission you and encourage you. Lord God, I thank you, Lord, that you're a God of purpose. I thank you, Lord God, that you stepped back and stepped away before the Holy Spirit came so that no one could hang and say, actually, it was Jesus who did that. No, it's the Holy Spirit, the complete Holy Spirit. And Father God, we just pray we, for the new generation of leaders. We pray for the new generation of people. We pray for our children this morning, learning in that 180 classes, Lord God. Lord, make them bold, make them powerful, Lord God. May they never, yeah, Lord God, recede and may they always be stepping forward. And we pray this morning, Lord God, wherever people are at, if they're in the midst of this roller coaster, Lord Father, that you would just bring them to the end and that they would see that you've got something for them next, Father. Lord, do something in this generation. Lord, do something with our nation, Lord Father. Lord, make us be nation changers, history makers, Lord God, for what you want to do in our midst, Father. That we wouldn't just people ready to take on the bystanding but we'll be ready to step up and out to be witnesses, to be disciples of the living God. Thank you, Father. Amen.